Do you produce a wine that is exceptional? Register your wine for this April's five-star wine selection. Over 100 judges, including masters of wine, master sommeliers, enologists, and wine professionals, will select top wines for feature in Five Star Wines The Book. The best certified biodynamic and organic wines also will be presented through the dedicated section, Wine Without Walls. Featured wines will gain continued worldwide visibility through Vinitaly International promotional support. Find out out more at 5starwines.it Italian Wine Podcast Chin Chin with Italian Wine People Hello, this is the Italian Wine Podcast with me, Monty Ward, and my guest today is Polly Hammond. Polly founded a company called Five Forests. What is Five Forests? Are there really five forests? And if so, where are they? And what kind of trees are involved? Five forests are the five forests from which we get French oak barrels. That was really that was ostensibly the name, but at the same time, because it's a digital company, we used best practices. Uh, URLs and names, therefore, that start with numbers, get higher hit rates, and eight characters is the sweet spot for a URL. Really? Yep. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. There's, there's method in your madness. There was a lot of method in our madness back in the day. So how did you get into um, the business that you're in, the, the marketing side, and why are you so good at it? Yeah, I, I got into it. Don't be um, modest. I got into it accidentally. Uh, no. Circuitously, I suppose, is probably the answer. My father-in-law was an executive for Southern for 35 years. So what's Southern? So Southern Glazers. So yes. what's that? Huge distributor in the U.S. Based uh, in? Along the West Coast, yes. And so that was the company that put food on my husband's plate growing up kind of thing, you know. So there was, despite the way that, that large-scale distribution is looked at, we had great relationships with them. Let's put it like that. And we made a decision when we were early in life, my husband and I, that we didn't want to go into alcohol because we wanted something that we felt was... I think a little bit more normal, normal family life, you know, normal hours. And so we went in a different direction. Always kept wine there in the background. Um, it was a part of our life, very much in a prosumer sense. What do you mean by prosumer? Prosumer. So that space between a consumer and a professional. So you know more than, uh, than an average consumer, but you don't make your money off of it. That was where we were. And then we expatriated to New Zealand from the U.S. So how did that happen? That's not something that you do in five minutes. No, it's not something you do in five minutes, but it took about seven days. At the time, uh, it was pretty easy. It's a long to, flight. It was, yeah, it was a long flight. It was pretty easy to get residency back then. This was over 20 years ago. We were living in Hollywood, and we were newly married, and we just wanted something different from life. And so we sold everything we own took 12 bottles of wine and two cats and left. From and LA to it. New Zealand? From LA That's to New such Zealand. a jump in so many ways, isn't it? I mean, obviously physically in the, in the hemispheres and, and uh, I mean, LA is a, um, an incredible place, but it's quite, a, I would find it a difficult place to live in. I've been there a few times. I, it's not the kind of place I would want to live, to be honest. But isn't, isn't New Zealand just like in the middle? It's a little island, well, islands in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Is, wasn't that a little bit of a It's a huge gamble? culture shock. Oh, yeah. And it was. But you know what? When you're 23, you feel fearless. That notion of what the hell were we doing just didn't happen back then because worst case scenario, you find a way to go home. But it was pretty isolating. At the time, it was very expensive to get off the island. And 
because we literally had sold everything, there was nothing to go home to. And so we had no choice but to succeed. And actually, you know, when we talk about the work that I do now with wine, I think that that, that experience was formative to how I work. I, I work specifically with small to medium-sized independent wineries. I don't work with big conglomerates. And these are the people where they are working. I mean, they're working their asses off to build a brand, to pay their mortgage, to care for their family because it's something that they love and they find they find worth and, and personal value in it. And so I think that, yeah, being there and having no safety net and having to learn how to build a business properly from the ground up, and we've now built three of them very successfully, has meant that when I go in and I work with wineries, we are talking about, you know, do you have strategy? Do you have goals? Do you understand your numbers? Why are you making the decisions you make in an area where a lot of people go in because of romance? Yeah, the wine industry, they've got a classic, we make lime make wine because we love it and we haven't thought about the back end which is actually keeping yourself financially viable absolutely and and there's no point in making something that you can't sell and you're just gonna you're gonna close up shop okay so you run brand workshops what is a brand workshop we do. That was a surprise. That grew up over the years. So just a little bit of history to answer that question. When I first started going in to brands, when, when I originally founded Five Forest, I thought that it was going to be much more on the creative side and a lot less on the business side. And we started getting in with wine businesses all over the world. And what we would find out is they had no strategy. They had no clear messaging. They didn't understand how to use data or they didn't even access data. And they didn't know what their customer experience should look like. All these things that are quite basic for businesses often outside of wine, but we don't do it so much in wine. And so I just started doing discovery workshops and I mandated it for all of my clients that before we would take a creative client, we had to go through this so that we had any kind of possibility for success at the end. And then that kind of just evolved into its own its own offering, which is we will go in with wineries and I, I do it all over the world. I sit with their data, their stakeholders. Normally it takes three days and work through actively and intensively work through getting the answers to all of those questions that can give them the strategy and the filters so that when I leave, they can make good decisions about how do they build a brand that's going to be here in five years or in 10 years without those constant day-to-day struggles of should I do this or should I do that or where do I spend my money or you know why? So go on, give us some concrete examples of of, you know, you come to my winery, I make, I know, 10 million bottles for sake of argument. You know, reds and white wine, the usual kind of stuff. And I'm a little bit lost. I know my wines are pretty good. I'm not ridiculously uncompetitive, but my brand is unknown. So just give me some concrete examples of what you're going to, how you're going to kick me up the ass. Okay. So the first thing we're going to be looking at is what are your real goals, not your bullshit goals. And this is, this is a super important thing because right now we are living in an era where we are all expected to have these beautiful altruistic goals. But in fact, a lot of business people, their goals are, I, I want to build a legacy. I want to be known for having the most awards or the best points. I want to make a truckload of money. Awards, or rather not awards, um, goals that they don't feel comfortable saying 
And I mean, we really have to push to that. Why are we really in the room? Why has somebody flown me around the world and booked out three days for all of their stakeholders? Because if we cannot get to that, there's going to be a very powerful disconnect. That means that whoever's doing their marketing for them is never going to achieve what that owner really wants to see happen. This sounds so obvious, doesn't it? It sounds so obvious, but it's discomfort for a lot of companies. I mean, you will spend the first two hours where they're just like circling around on what it is until you finally get to what we're really trying to do there. Um, But you know know when that moment's come where finally the the straw, they finally ditch their preconceptions almost of you and maybe they it about you know we, we really want to just make money or whatever whatever it is whatever their goal is but is there like a moment of release when that happens like everybody kind of like yeah well okay we finally got there we squeezed it out and yeah. now we, we we can address properly what we've been circling around for the last three hours did you get a bit annoyed do you think you know, we could have we could have done this in the first five minutes or do you think this is all part of the process of almost expurgating yourself from these these confusions in your brain say so actually you know what we need to find a clearer route so my honest answer is that yeah there are a lot of times i could go in i've already, we've done our research we know what we're walking into when we go to do a discovery and i could go in and i could tell them i could say all right this is what your goal is this is what your numbers are here's the strategy yada yada that serves no good purpose because that's actually commonly an, an experience that someone has with an agency so the entire experience is socratic Socratic, okay. Yes, so that I am extracting from them the answers. And and when they go through that process, what it means is that they have that emotional connection to their answers and they have buy-in. And a really good example of something that can happen, because I do mandate that we have as many stakeholders in the room as possible. And the largest one we've ever done had fluctuating numbers between 15 and 18 people in a room. And I'm the buffer. You know, they're able to share with me things that have felt confrontational in the past to share with each other. You see this in multi-generational wineries a lot. So at some point, I often cannot be talking at all. And you have them really sorting out their issues that sometimes have to do with representation or voice or agency. You know, when you are in that instance of multi-generational, when you are looking at, well, what are the goals? Are we talking about an exit strategy? Is it a sustainable? session plan, you know, where are we going with all of this? And that can be quite intense between this, the stakeholders themselves. But quite cathartic as well. They get it off I their hope chest. So. They, yeah. yeah. So what's the next step? People put things on the table face to face, they get it out, been keeping it inside for weeks, months or years. You've you've broken a wall if you like, or the glass, whatever you want to call it. What is the next step. Okay, so something that we noticed wine is notoriously bad at is actually understanding who their customers are. We have this generic set of wine personas that were generated about 11 years ago, and everybody keeps using those. And I think that there was an era when that, you know, very bland generic customer persona might have worked. But what we know now from how um, consumer expectations have changed and how connectedness and the internet have changed that is that we need to really get hyper-specific. And so that's what we do, is that we will work through generally, you know, a handful of customer personas. We use data and what I call anecdata, which is well-informed stories. So 
why it's important to have everyone in the room is that sometimes the people who are front of house for you will know a lot more about what customers are asking, what they're expecting, how they're engaging with the brand. And they are often not given a, a loud, credible voice. You know, we've had that happen. I had one instance where a key person was leaving. She was a young millennial and she was on her way out of a brand to go and do other things in life. And having her in the room was vital because she was able to share a ton of feedback that had, that space had never been there for. Did um, she stay? No, and it wasn't a goal to stay. I mean, like, part of the reason we, we chose to have her in the room is because her life was going on. She was staying in line, but she was going in a different direction. So we go through and we document. That's a really big thing is that we are documenting what we are doing so that this is scalable beyond the three days that I'm in the room with them. We do brand values. We do customer journeys. So we could spend easily a whole day with our personas and our brand values in hand now, again, Socratically auditing the customer experience from the very moment they even discover in some cases that wine exists. Like, why are they there? Because, again, as an industry, and we've got two very disparate opinions on this, but we think we know why people love our brand. I mean, another thing that we do is we talk about what is our competition, and and this ties in, and that we think we know what our competition is. But in fact, our competition isn't other wineries. It's not other wine in most cases. You know, our competition is a good handbag or kombucha or, you know, all these ways that people might choose to fill a need. And if we can't get down with that, then we're just circling. We're circling the wagons. We're hoping that something succeeds, and that's a bad way to build a business. Okay, so I mean, what sort of feedback do you get? Do people take it in immediately, or do they just sit and reflect and get back to you after? I know you're physically there, but mm-hmm. um, a, a week or a month, or send an email. I remember what you said on the fifth of May in the seminar. Da, 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 I finally got it. Or what's the feedback? So that was really surprising to me. Is that it, we get tremendous feedback, and we do have a lot of people say that was the first time that they ever sat down and looked at their wine business through, you know, through this more strategic lens. But one reason that that happens is that before we wrap up, we try to make certain that they have a flexible action plan so that we leave them with something tangible. When I leave that room, I don't want them to have spent this money to get me there and then have no impetus to continue on. So it is laying out, okay, when I walk away, what happens? And then part of the experience is sometime in the next two to three weeks, they do get a full report on it where we have we have taken notes, we've documented, we've provided our own insights based on our experience. And yeah, that's there for them. Like right down in some cases, if we've gotten to straight timelining, that they will get a full timeline of what comes next, you know, through maybe a 12-month period. You know what? You spend three days with a brand, I feel invested in that brand. Call me, like email me, ask, solve a problem. So what reaction to some companies, you're, I'm guessing, but you'll have people that absolutely get your approach. Oh, thank goodness. Finally, we've got somebody that understands where we've been going wrong or where we could do better. And there'll be other people in the company. Oh, who the hell, who does, who the hell does she think she is, this lady coming here telling us what to do? How do you deal with those people? And is it mainly men that are a bit antsy with you? Or is, it, is that too simplistic? Yes, I have had that happen. Go on, spill yeah, the beans. Spill um, the beans. I have had it happen. And it was learning experience for me. Um, 
So most of the time, the way that we work, because we do work with small to medium brands, is that I am in direct contact with the key decision makers, and they are the people who decide to bring me in. Awesome. That's great. Sometimes it happens that they might not be the person driving the conversation in the room, and that's where it's a problem. I did one where I was really, really out of sync with the brand. This is the one where there were like 18 people in the room. It was a man, to be fair, who was incredibly aggressive with me because I was challenging his view on how things happened. And I'm enough of a bitch that I looked at him and said, you know, if you want to, if you've paid for me to come here and if you want to get what you need out of this, you'll listen, but you're welcome to leave. I mean, like they can walk out the door because if they're impeding process, then I'm not helping that brand and I'm wasting their money. And if I'm a business advisor, the last thing I want to do is cause some brand to throw money down the toilet. Yeah, and also there are still 17 other people in the room that are prepared to listen yeah. to you. But I've had it happen in smaller groups, you know, and and also it is one of the benefits of not being a a part of their team precisely. You know, I go in, I do a job, I don't do it to pitch for more work. And so if I walk out the door at the end of day three and they've gotten what they needed, but they don't, you know, that that person doesn't love me, they don't have to. That that was never part of our agreement. Yeah, I mean, the idea, I think, with your job is you fly and you sort it out and they shouldn't have to call you again if they've understood what you said. Maybe a few follow up emails or whatever, but it's not like they're going to, you're going to have to keep firefighting every year because then something's gone terribly wrong if that's the case. Yeah, is that yeah, right? Yeah, and it's, it's also, I hope, understanding that it is something that needs to be a living document. You know, the work that I do with them right now may not be the same in a year or in two years. I would love for them to be able to do it themselves. I mean, you know, my full agenda is made public. I don't hide it at all. And all the information you need in the world to do it is out there thanks to the internet. But sometimes it helps to have a person leading leading that charge. So what's the what's your next step? I mean you obviously love what you do. Yeah. And you you know clearly are good at what you do. Go on, what uh, what's your next step? What is my next step? We've You're got You're not gonna two. emigrate again somewhere else, are you? I go to Barcelona next week to try to buy an apartment for my retirement. Yeah. Retirement? You look like you're 23. Thank you. God bless you. I don't think that's going to show off in those pictures we just took. So our next step, we have one that is wine-related and one that isn't. And the isn't is what? Another The, the isn't or? is, no, not at all. So because we work in specifically digital, we work all the time with tech and data and wine, something that's going on behind the scenes is that we are really looking at the ways that we can use uh, data that doesn't come from Google and Facebook to drive better marketing. I personally am becoming more and more aware of the issues of surveillance capitalism and my own discomfort you know, with using these platforms. And I think that ethically, if that's a problem for me as an individual, it needs to be something that our businesses need to be looking at. So uh, I, I, you know, I don't have an answer to that yet. But I mean, it's funny, funny you should say that is this is true. I mean, last night, I mean, we won't name the actual social media platform, but it's one that's been in the news recently. And to deactivate your account, again, without naming that, is a real palaver. I mean, you know, I, I, both my parents are dead. I mean, it's easier to handle the, the death estate, whatever the will of, of, of a dead parent, than it is to, to get out of the clutches of this particular social media platform. And you have to have almost a strategy to leave. But uh, when I get the time, and you do need time, I, I will do it. And so what you're saying is you're going to look at data more for um, what consumers are actually buying on the street in, in, in shops, etc., rather than big data from the internet. Is that correct? Well, if you're 
yeah. with supermarkets, right? Well, so there are options where you can, and this is going to go into geeky stuff, sorry, where instead of embedding a Google tracking pixel or social media tracking pixel onto your site, you can actually own your own data collection platform that sits under that site. Uh, And I I don't know if that's the route that we're going to go, but I think that it's something that we need to consider. And we also do have, uh, we do have good data coming out of the wine industry finally uh, that we can rely on to get a better, clearer understanding that is cleaner and more specific to our purpose than using big, you know, what big was, aggregators. What was wrong with the data before in the wine? Is it just people not counting properly or there wasn't the technology to count properly or people bullshitting? Or? Bingo. Okay. I mean, I, I think that we have self-reporting issues. Uh, I think that we have what is the purpose of who's providing the data is an issue. Um, but more than anything, I mean, this is why I say I feel like that not coming from wine is a benefit to my clients because what we have is we have a lot of people who keep looking at the same subsets of data and they're not seeing a product in a context of a much larger changing consumer you know, experience, expectation, marketplace, that kind of thing. We can't continue to only look at wine data. We have to look at wine data, and then we have to look at all of the other data that affects the spending that is affecting wine. So, you know, right now we're talking a lot in wine about the temperance movement and moderation. Well, that that information came from external to us because our numbers were dwindling. So it's I, interesting you talk about the temperance movement. I mean, I know that's always been quite strong in America. I mean, you've got a, quite a complex puritanical yeah. background. Yeah, um, and um, obviously in Europe and France, even there, there have been laws passed or suggested that people should drink much less, and consumption is generally declining, it seems, also in Italy, generational changes. So so you're also saying to companies, as well as brand building, you've got to insulate your brand against these, these, these trends. Well, so... If you go back to other businesses or what big businesses are doing, there's a list of things called the PESL factors. And I'm, let's see if I can remember these. Political, economic, social, technological, legal, and environmental. And the massive list of external factors that impact our businesses. Obviously, we're looking at that from sustainability, climate, and the environment right now very heavily in line. But do we pay that much attention to all of those other factors? Are these something that small to medium-sized wineries are sitting around talking about what are the pestle factors that are affecting our, our potential business sales in five to ten years? No. And, and that's even another thing is that we're, we're for an industry that plants vines in the ground and, you know, hopes that it grows what we want it to grow. Like, we are so short-termism in a lot of our business and our marketing. And that is profoundly confusing for me. Yeah, and also kind of contradictory almost. It is. It just seems inherently at odds with one another. So nice to end on the environmental line, especially for someone whose company is called Five Forest. I want to say thanks to my guest today, Polly Hammond. You're an incredibly impressive uh, interviewee, I have to say. I almost didn't have to ask any questions. But I'm sure if you want to come and audit my business sometime, it'll take you four and a half seconds. Well done. Awesome. (laughs) Thanks so much, Mark. So uh, um, it's going to be the, the data that you 
you have to crunch and the, the conclusions that you have to draw. I mean, that's a massive responsibility for you. And um, But you seem like, you're, well, you are the kind of person that can handle that massive responsibility and, and just cut to the chase, which is what we don't always do in wine. We, we waffle. I think I think that comes from our, our tasting notes. We just, do you like the wine? Yeah, it was kind of fruity and a bit this and a bit that. We've got into that patina of just of not really saying what we think or even thinking what we should be thinking. And, um, and you just like kicking it hard and saying, nope. Well, I have a good team standing behind me, yeah, I'm making sure that do. possible. So, I'm yeah, but you're the leader there. You're the well. you're the you're the big cheese. So, thanks very much, Polly. Thank very you, Marty. impressive. Thanks. Got to get you back again. You, you've got to come and audit the podcast. You know, order our books and everything. Oh and just, man, awesome! <laughs> our brand values. I know. <laughs> yeah, so, so um, yeah, so it's quite funny because my husband's really familiar with your podcast much more. Oh, he's our listener. So than, That's great. Than I am. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so he can tell me all about about my podcasters and how that goes but thanks that was great I've never done that before really first time for everything yeah woohoo listen to all of our pods on SoundCloud iTunes Spotify Himalaya FM and on ItalianWinePodcast.com don't forget to send your tweets to at Podcast.